As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hello, and welcome to Western Civ. In this supplemental episode, we will examine the daily lives of citizens of Rome. We already know how large Rome was. We know how its basic governing structure worked. But what did people do for entertainment? How did they live? Where did they work? Today, we will answer those questions and more. Obviously, one cannot do anything in a major city without some income. So what was commerce like in classical Rome? First, we need to remember that Rome remained a pre-industrial city So trade was conducted on a relatively small scale, despite Rome's large comparative size. Small farmers would bring their own goods to the city, where they would sell them out of carts or temporary stands. If goods needed to be brought larger distances, then private shippers, called negociores, would ship the goods and then sell them at an increased price. Generally, The muscle for all these operations at every single stage were slaves, lots and lots of slaves. So what did Rome export? Well, by the second century BC, nothing. Rome had become a consumer city or parasite, depending upon your view. Rome exploited its ever-growing empire to enrich the ruling class who then spent lavish sums on suburban estates around the capital. Though there have been arguments made by economists that Rome's demand for taxes and produce actually led to a more productive economy, and, well, certainly a more flexible and monetized one. And certainly, agriculturally, Rome helped the provinces become more productive because they really had no other choice. Feeding Rome was a major issue, particularly when agriculture barely supported the farmers themselves most of the time. Our sources are consistent in that their reference to food riots and shortages, so that must have been a major issue. 
Rome was fed mostly by Sicily at first, then, after the destruction of Carthage, by North Africa. And this was necessary because, by the 2nd century BC, Italy itself was only producing cash crops, that is, vines, olives, etc., and so it could not feed its largest city. When Augustus reorganized the city, he appointed a prefect to be in charge of arranging the distribution of grain, which shows just how important that position had become. The title for this prefect was Prefectus Anonai. To really understand the grain dole under the Principate, we should first trace its route. First, the grain generally came from Egypt and North Africa and was bought by private landowners. It was harvested, then stored in barns for shipping. When packed aboard a ship for Rome, a journey which could take two months, a sample of the grain was sealed in a leather wallet to seal against adulteration during the trip. When the ship reached Italy, it was offloaded and the samples were checked for quality. The stocks were then sent to private warehouses, Horai, which were specifically designed to guard against moisture, heat, rodents, etc., where they were held pending distribution to private wholesalers and retailers. Officials would oversee the transportation of some of the grain to distribution points, where citizens would then line up on the appointed day with a token to receive their appointed grain dole. It seems that most citizens for daily consumption bought or made bread into flat loaves. Apart from bread, a citizen's diet depended mostly on their resources. Some had small gardens to grow fruits and vegetables. Other items could be procured at the local market. We know that olives were the main source of fat for the Romans, while honey was the primary sweetening agent. Beans and peas were important in the lower class diet and were grown mostly in Italy. Fruit was eaten fresh in season, while vegetables were almost certainly grown locally. Dairy products were produced near the city, while fresh milk would not have been possible, but more various cheeses were. Meat was rare, and really only seen at the dinner parties of the rich. Fish was much more common, and there were special fish markets in Rome. As for flavor, there were some spices available from the east, but these were very expensive. Readily available, however, was garum, a briny fish sauce which could be made easily at home. Most small merchants or craftsmen sold their goods out of what was called a taberna. These were rectangular rooms secured in the front by a grill or folding door, where goods would be sold with a rear room or mezzanine where the workers lived. Many shops were actually tended by slaves for their masters, and many shops were owned by the descendant of former slaves and foreigners. Tradespeople who lived in the same neighborhood generally worked in a spirit of cooperation rather than in some sort of cutthroat competition. Neighbors often formed into collegia, which we will discuss in more detail later. Clothing was a very common trade item. By the time of the Principate, the theory that Roman matrons were to spend their time weaving was just that, a theory. From the late Republic on, locally grown wool was used only for cheap clothing or woven by slaves for use within the household. More expensive clothing needed the skills of a fuller, who dyed the cloth as it was cleaned. Dyes generally came from plants and shellfish and were a critical luxury item. Shoes were readily available throughout the city, and we know of all different kinds, sandals, military boots, slippers, so on and so forth. 
Auctions were also ways to move a large number of goods and quite common in Rome. They could range from a wholesale auction to smaller items like perhaps just one or two slaves. I mentioned previously that Rome had monetized the economy of its empire to a level which had never been seen before. When we talk about money and prices, we generally speak in terms of the Cistercius, or bronze coin. Larger denominations were the silver denarius, which is four Cistercies, and the gold aris, which is four denarii. A day laborer might be expected to earn between two to four Cistercies a day, which meant five days' wages could provide enough income for a month's worth of food. A typical price for a tunic, for example, was about 15 sesterces. Our best guess for an average year's rent in Rome would have been somewhere in the range of four to 500 sesterces. And that would have been for your very basic insulae apartment. Rome was not built in a day, but it was built, so how? The construction industry was based around private contractors, called redemptiores. They employed their own workers, sourced jobs out, and have gangs of slaves to perform labor. For really large jobs, such as an aqueduct, the emperor's staff would have to coordinate large numbers of these redemptiores. Supplying materials was also the job of these contractors. The issue of supply was massively aided with the discovery of concrete. The Romans discovered that they could combine volcanic ash with traditional concrete to make an incredibly hard substance that could be poured into a mold to harden. The work was labor-intensive, but none of the labor was really skilled, so it was a good job for slaves. So now we know what they did for work. But how did the Romans live? As we previously discussed, wealthy Romans tended to live in large mansions, or a domus, while the poorer plebs lived in tenements called insulae. During the Principate, traditional forms of architecture began to change because there was no longer any need for the type of house that one needed to receive hundreds of clients every morning. Those days were long gone. There was a much higher emphasis now on family and social entertaining and so much more emphasis on gardens as places to entertain. Many old aristocratic families had died out during the civil wars, and new wealthy individuals were more likely to build houses around a central courtyard, very prevalent in the rest of the Mediterranean, than in an atrium, which was more needed for receiving clients. As mentioned, most of the balance of Rome's urban population lived in insulae, but even there we see social stratification, the most desirable locations were always on the lower floors. There was no plumbing in the upper floors, and rooms actually got smaller the higher you went. The higher you climbed, the more difficult and cramped conditions became. The layout of the insulae would have made any privacy almost impossible. People generally would share a cooking area and perhaps common areas as well, and retired to an individual room for sleeping. Now, new under the Principate were the strip houses we will see well into the medieval period. 
These were essentially long, narrow buildings that had one room up front with an entrance, but then a long hallway or stairwell that ran next to that room all the way along until one could reach a mezzanine or small courtyard. If people had saved some money, then they would pay their rent outright, but if not, then they would share an apartment with someone else. So where did people stay when they traveled? Well, for the upper classes, that was easy. Patricians tended to travel with large groups of family and servants, and stayed with friends in townhouses or villas whenever possible. The rest of society, however, was not so lucky. They had to stay in inns of sometimes, let's say, dubious quality. Inns were generally located on the edges of town, which was most convenient for travelers. The curb in front of the inn was lower to accommodate carts, which would have been pushed into the courtyard for the night. There were rooms right out front where hired mule drivers would rest. Also out front would be a sort of snack bar, and behind it private rooms where customers could eat and drink. One would then proceed into the atrium, which would serve as a kind of lobby. Staircases would lead up to guest rooms, while some inns were known for having more spacious dining rooms available as well. While these were never of the best quality, they were a far cry from the lupinara, which were little more than brothels. Our written sources give us a taste of their quality. Pretonius recalls a story in which one traveler scrabbled on the wall. We pissed in the bed. I confess it. Yes, innkeeper. We did wrong. If you ask why, there wasn't any pot. So now we know about houses and inns, but what were Roman neighborhoods like? The main urban unit was the Vicus. This was essentially the main street, and then the alleys spreading around it. Augustus organized these a bit further, putting two main streets under the control of a Vico Magistri, which he then used as his main administration block for his 14 districts, as we discussed last time. Roman life was spent mostly in large, open public spaces. These allowed the opportunities to discuss business, and also for casual contacts and pleasure. The streets that made up the neighborhoods were rarely made up of straight roads. This is because the streets of Rome followed the original path of Rome's streets, which were really barely goat paths. The Roman word for via was used only to designate major highways. These would then branch off into the vicus. The Romans had different words for streets depending on the shape, however. Aclivius was a sloping street, Plataea a major street, Semita a narrow street. We cannot think of Rome as having these beautifully paved streets, by the way. Most roads were made either of just dirt or the occasional surface of pebbles. Alongside of some of the roads ran colonnades to shelter passerbys from the sun, and every once in a while one might see a tree, but those were rare. Rome was ringed by walls, at least kind of. The Servian Wall, built in the 4th century BC, defined the boundary of the city for about six and a half centuries. Eventually, Aurelian built a new circuit, nearly 19 kilometers in length. Yet, for all this, Rome's walls certainly failed to keep its population hemmed in. 
Along the outer edge of the suburban area, the wealthy built massive villas, creating a sort of green belt around the city. These villas were not designed like city mansions. They were essentially built in reverse, with the point of view of the house being out towards the countryside, rather than in towards the road. As has been alluded to in the past, the roads leading into Rome itself were lined with tombs. Many were massive since death never killed a Roman zeal to show off his family honor to any passerby. But let's get back to the living, shall we? Rome was not all work, far from it. Romans tended to live life mostly outdoors if they could. Parades and celebrations, of course, but they also had trials, plays, and commerce. From dawn till dusk, the Roman day was divided into 12 hours. In the middle of the summer, each hour was about 75 minutes long, while in the winter, the exact same hour was about 45 minutes long. While this might seem odd to us today, we need to remember that there were no lights at all during the evening to illuminate the streets. Rome would have been pitched black at night, and quite dangerous. Thus, the hours of sunlight were the important ones. The city's life started very early. During the first two hours of the day, shopkeepers would be setting up, and other allied tradesmen getting ready for the day's business. Again, during the Republic, the most important event during these hours was the salutatio, when the clients would head out to meet their patrons. This was normally done by the end of the third hour. Also by the third hour, we can expect many businessmen were already sitting down to finalize deals and prepare goods for shipping. The Romans ate little for breakfast, but those who were peckish might sit down at a taberna for a little bread soaked in wine about now. By the sixth hour, most Romans had already put in a hard day's work and so sat down for lunch. In the Republic, this meal was mostly eaten at home, but during the Principate, Many people began taking quick meals in the various popinas, a kind of inn that sold snacks and such. If it were summer, at this point it would definitely be time for a nap. Ordinarily, businesses would be completed by this day. Streets would be less crowded, people would begin to head out for a little rest and relaxation. For those who wanted a more strenuous relaxation, they could head out to the campus marshes for exercise. Then there were the baths, and oh my were Romans ever gaga for their baths. The baths were a way of life for Romans. I could do an entire podcast series just on the Roman obsession with bathing. It was the setting in which they washed themselves, took exercise, spent leisure time, were exposed to the arts, made political and social connections, and did any other host of things. Interestingly, by the time of Augustus, the baths were still fairly new, having only entered the Roman social fabric around the 2nd century BC. It was Agrippa who was responsible for the first massive bath complex in Rome, which were completed around 25 BC. That being said, from the Principate on, baths were an increasingly essential part of Roman living, greatly aided by the innovation of central heating. Many Stoics, on the other hand, decried the use of such heated pools and lamented for the loss of simpler, cold baths. Then again, aren't people always lamenting the loss of something? For a nominal admission fee, all the luxury of the baths were open to everyone. The poor had no villas of their own, 
but here they could bathe, exercise, listen to poetry, and on and on. Customers had a wide variety of exercises to choose from, lifting weights, playing ball, swimming, or even receiving a massage. Service personnel were available to provide the latter, plus to plick hair, sell cakes, and bath oil. While all this was going on, slaves would guard their master's items in the changing rooms, and underground slaves tended furnaces and washed towels. And even here, in the mystery of the baths, we find slavery. It's simply inescapable in Rome. Among the upper classes, a simple dinner would be eaten around the 10th hour, while a dinner party would start a bit earlier, perhaps around the 9th. Every well-to-do house had at least one dining room, and many had multiple. Guests would be seated according to their standing, and many times this was taken to an absurd extreme. Pliny reported that oftentimes guests would receive different menus based on their social standing, with the best food and wine to the guest of honor, lower quality meats to less important friends, and the scraps to freedmen clients. Most guests were male, but Rome always had a proud tradition that wives and other women could attend these parties, which they claimed clearly set them apart from the Greeks. Of course, not every party was so lavish. Many times, if just one friend was invited to come over, it would be much the same as an intimate potluck. The poorest residents of Rome, who were not invited to such lavish affairs, often sought out some company at a local inn. Neighborhood acquaintances or allied tradesmen would often get together to drink, gamble, and talk. Augustus, however, found these cerebibi, or late drinkers, often found their way into discussing politics and not in a positive way from his perspective. So Augustus passed various laws, prohibiting inns from selling this or that food in effort to make these meetings much less attractive. It never worked, however. There were also the collegia, which we all know about from our narrative and our good old friend Clodius. These were the more formal clubs or guilds that could be professional purposes, social groups, religious cults, or upper-class men in quasi-military groups. There were also collegia for the poorer groups of people, who all paid into a system in order to guarantee a simple but decent burial. These groups would generally meet monthly to share a drink or a meal. Augustus did his best, again, to try to get these under control, and required that all collegia be chartered by the emperor. Early in the Principate, charters were mostly given to collegia that only met once per month, and those who met for religious purposes. Well, the latter was a loophole large enough to drive a truck through and was quickly exploited, resulting in a massive increase in petitions for so-called religious collegia. Collegia had always incurred suspicion, but they were an important part of the social life of Rome. Collegia would sit together at the amphitheater, they could turn out to cheer the emperor, they provided a small environment where even the lowest could speak his mind and feel as though he had some part in this Roman political system. To conclude our tour of Rome and Roman life, we need to examine religion and festivals in the city. Certainly at the outset, we should note that Romans would not have made a distinction between religious and secular events. 
Religion was a part of Roman life, and every part of it. And let me also say at this point that we're talking about pre-Christian Rome right now. Romans believed that every family had spirits in the home which helped protect them. These were augmented by the influence of the family's ancestors, to whom a shrine would often be kept. The Latin word templum did not actually refer to what we would think of as a temple. It referred merely to a religious space set aside through sacred words for the purpose of taking the auspices. In other words, a space within which the will of the gods could be divined. There were, of course, temples in Rome. In fact, they were often the most prominent landmarks. Most were constructed of marble, which had been so much more common by the end of the Republic. The most common event in a temple was a ritual sacrifice, generally of a cow or a goat. But temples also served the purpose of displaying the wealth or prestige of whoever built it, specifically the emperor from the days of Augustus on. In addition to traditional Roman temples, Rome was home to any number of foreign cults. Syrians, with shrines to Mithras, and Jewish synagogues all found homes in Rome. Though sometimes these cults were looked on with suspicion, Augustus was very hostile to the cult of Isis due to Cleopatra, they were generally inevitably accepted. If temples made space sacred, so the calendar did the same to time. During the early Republic, the city's calendar was determined by various festivals, many of which were quaint remembrances, by the time Augustus tried as he might to revive them. Most of these festivals had been agricultural in nature. For example, March 1st, the start to the agricultural year. March 17th, the Feast of Bacchus. October 15th, the Festival of Jupiter, right around the time of the harvest. These were examples of some of the more agriculturally based festivals held throughout the year. However, many festivals were not so based. The Parentalia in February was for visiting the tombs of deceased relatives and remembering the dead. No public business at all could be conducted during this entire period, from February 13th through February 21st. But the largest and most raucous festival of the year was Saturnalia, which lasted from December 17th through the 23rd, mysteriously right around the time of our current Christmas. There were public banquets, Masters and slaves switched roles, families exchanged presents, and many times the fun spilled out into the city streets with singing, dancing, and gambling going on throughout the entire city. Now each year a significant number of days was set aside for the gods, as official ludi or game days. By the end of the Republic, there were 74, and there could be theatrical shows, gladiatorial contests, or chariot races. These games preempted all public businesses. The law courts were closed. Even moneylenders closed down for the day. They were arranged by the Adiles and served to honor the gods, past military victories, and in time, of course, the emperor. Many took these days off work, while others specifically worked on these days, either selling food or souvenirs, or perhaps working as charioteers. Most ludi would begin with a parade having a variety of entertainments between then the close with several days of chariot racing. The Circus Maximus could accommodate 250,000 people. Everyone had their favorite team. First there were the whites and the reds, but later on came the blues and the greens added for a bit more sport. On the day of a race there would be a procession into the circus. 
The crowds would cheer as the trumpet would signal the start, and then a napkin would be dropped by a consul or praetor, signaling that the race was officially on. In addition, upper-class Romans might pay for munera, or gladiatorial contests, in honor of deceased relatives. We will go more into those, however, when we do our supplemental on the construction of the Colosseum. Yet for all this fun, the greatest spectacle a Roman would ever witness would certainly have been a triumph. This was the right of the victorious general to parade through the city. If a general requested a triumph, he would have to wait outside the city till he was either granted or denied. If granted, he would parade through the city with his entire army in a gilded chariot, his face painted red to resemble Jupiter, the king of the gods. A slave would ride behind him to remind the general of his mortality as he paraded through, although the emperors did away with that last practice. Under the Principate, only emperors could celebrate a triumph, and as a result, they became much more rare to the point that it was probably once a generation event. So there you have it. From morning to sunset, life in Rome. Not bad, eh? Now in our last supplemental, we will leave the streets of the Eternal City and head out into the provinces to examine the Roman practice of urbanization and how it massively affected Western civilization. With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.